Welcome to the Tactical Tool Belt Podcast. On this show, we focus on how the real estate industry, the world's single largest emitter of greenhouse gases, can leverage climate tech to become part of the sustainability solution. I'm your host, Tyson West. I'm a partner on the climate tech team at Fifth Wall, the largest and most active venture investor in technology for the global real estate industry. In this podcast, we'll be joined by people on the front lines, the people inventing, investing in, and deploying the climate tech we'll need to make our homes, offices, and communities more efficient, more sustainable, and ever closer to zero carbon. Today, I'm joined by Olivia Bartelli, who is Executive Vice President of Portfolio Operations and People at Macerich, which is an owner, operator, and developer of retail and mixed-use real estate across the U.S. In this episode, we talk about how Macerich has been focused on efficiency and sustainability for almost two decades. We talk about their significant on-site power capabilities that include solar and fuel cell capacity, and we talk about the opportunity of developing electric vehicle charging as a business line. We also talk about the unique challenge that retail owners face in aligning tenant goals and behaviors with their own sustainability goals. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, Olivia, thanks so much for taking the time to hop on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tyson. No problem. So maybe before we dive into Mace Rich's sustainability program, I'd love to understand a bit about uh, your background and sort of how sustainability falls under your current mandate. Um, I think you've been with Matrix since about 2005. Is that right? That is. I've had a variety of roles in the company that have ranged from risk management to property management to human resources. Uh, I come by sustainability pretty honestly. I'm the daughter of hippies that graduated from Chico State in the late 60s. Uh, (laughs) To paraphrase Barbara Mandrell, we were solar when solar wasn't cool. Um, so sustainability is something I've always had an interest in, and I'm really privileged to be able to support the global initiative here at Maysearch. So you are EVP of Operations and People, I believe. Maybe just for the audience, help help us understand how, how Maysearch organizes around this and how sustainability rolls up under that umbrella. Because I have had such a broad range of experience in disciplines across the company, uh, it has really served me well in supporting our sustainability initiative because this is an initiative that doesn't just show up in back of house. Uh, This shows up on mall in consumer marketing. This shows up with our retailers. This shows up with our employees. So this really broad spectrum of departments that is sort of aggregated under portfolio operations of people, which includes security and sustainability and real estate tax risk management, mall operations, environmental, human resources. These are all disciplines that play an integral part in our sustainability and energy management programs. And we think it's really important to have the ESG functions roll up to a leader in a broad spectrum of uh, company operations because it does affect all of our company operations. Got it. And so uh, at Maysearch, ESG broadly, it's all, you group them together. Um, so it, do, you, do you think of it, do you have a, a separate sustainability program or do you have an ESG program that includes sustainability? We started with a separate sustainability and energy management program. Um, but as these disciplines around social programs and governance and even sustainability and energy management have matured, one of the things that we quickly realized is that 
our fundamental approach to business is inextricable to our commitment to these ESG practices. So much of our program rolls up under portfolio operations and people, but we do have a significant partnership across the company, particularly with our marketing groups and our, our IT groups, our governance groups, as we make sure that we promulgate this message to all of the stakeholders, internal and external. Okay, that makes sense. Um, you know what, maybe maybe we should pause for a minute and for the audience, can you just give a quick overview um, uh, of Macerich? So, you know, what kind of properties, where are they located? Um, uh, who is Macerich and, and what sort of um, properties do you manage? Macerich is one of the country's leading owners, operators, and developers of real estate, uh, retail, and mixed-use real estate. We have 46 really high-quality town centers in densely populated U.S. markets, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, the Bay Area, Phoenix, um, some of the properties with which our audience might be familiar, Tyson's Corner, Scottsdale Fashion Square, Washington Square, Broadway Plaza, Santa Monica Place. Got it. And you sort of, I mean, you do everything, right? You develop, you operate, um, you sort of, do you go from uh, dirt field on up? We do. We um, operate in the full spectrum of development as well as property management and ownership. Got it. Okay. And I should also mention Maysearch is a fifth wall LP. So we've, um, we've had a great working relationship with, uh, with you and the company for, um, for a while here. Um, okay. So uh, maybe it's sort of jumping into sustainability in detail here. I think it's one thing that Maybe uh, at least what we've seen out there that is sort of novel about how you approach it is you've been doing it for a long time. Um, sort of, you know, we've seen a lot of people um, in the business kind of jump on board, call it with the current news cycle. Um, but it's something pretty interesting that there's a there's a history of sustainability at Macerich that goes pretty far back. So I don't know, maybe can you just a brief history of, of why Macerich has been focused on this for so long and just um, just kind of put put what you're doing today in a bit of historical context. Sure. Our ESG program was really born out of the late 90s and early aughts drive for energy efficiency and the goal to be that heart of our communities. And part of being the social heart of our communities is driving responsible change for and with the communities that we serve. So part and parcel of that was this burgeoning notion that making good environmental choices doesn't have to be bifurcated from making good economic choices. So in the early 2000s, we began assessing our assets, um, primarily for energy and util utility utilization, um, which drives the majority of our carbon footprint. Our strategic energy program um, then enabled us to establish strategies across the portfolio to prioritize, implement efficiency, operational excellence, and make sure that we aligned our capital requests with those good economic choices and good environmental choices. So we established a five-pronged plan to achieve what at the time were the greatest energy efficiencies and the largest returns. So that was, you know, First, repairing and maintaining the systems and equipment that we had to improve efficiency, maintaining and implementing control systems that allowed those systems and equipments to be operated in the way they were intended and only when they were needed. So this included, you know, things like real-time monitoring systems to analyze what's going on at the properties and to allow for real-time system control. 
implementing efficiencies, um, you know, what, what upgrades do we need to invest in? Do we need to look at LEDs, VFDs, high efficiency motors to make our properties continue to maximize that energy efficiency? And then once you have sort of done that retrofit or analyzed what you need to do from the demand side, you can move into supply side solutions, which we did, um, you know, addressing things like central plants and on-site generation that is appropriately sized for the new loads. And then lastly, energy procurement. Um, and, you know, over this period of time, we have spent a significant amount of our investment focused on this sustainable technology implementation to, again, make sure that we are making good economic choices, but that we are supporting our communities. Um, we've done over 150,000 fixture changes. So I think that I am the only person that can adequately answer the question, you know, how many people does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> the answer is 654. <laughs> um, we have comprehensive, you know, central control and monitoring systems. We've optimized our central plants. We have high efficiency water fixtures, smart irrigation systems. We've expanded our waste and recycling programs. And all of this investment has come out of a really thorough analysis, again, that we started in the early aughts around what do our properties consume and how can we ensure that that is the minimal effective dose of consumption. Maybe on a like a project by project basis, how, you know, how do you decide what projects get the green light and what don't like, do you have, uh, you know, a, a cohesive sort of payback period across everything? Is it more nuanced than that? But just generally, how do you decide which projects to do and which projects not to do? So the major driver is obviously what is the property able to provide for itself and for the community? And then what is the return period for that project? Right. And that's changed over time. You know, 10 or 15 years ago, um, an acceptable return was X. And as the you know, great financial crisis came in, the return changed. Um, and it has changed even now in terms of what we're looking for out of returns as we put our stake in the ground and um, aim for carbon neutrality by 2030. So carbon neutrality by 2030. Uh, let, let me... let's put a pin in that because I want to come back to that. But walk, walk me through maybe your total KPI framework for your sustainability program. So, you know, did do you sort of build it up from building level KPIs from, you know, lead and bream certification? Is it sort of portfolio like that your 2030 carbon goal? Um, just maybe how, what are your North Star metrics and how do you kind of think about just KPIs or, or around your whole sustainability program? You know, when we started, we were looking at the per building level. So, um, you know, largely at a site level, what does the site consume? What can we save? How can we make this, uh, you know, more efficient? But as we start to aggregate all of these data across our 46 properties, it becomes really compelling from a portfolio perspective. Anytime we're doing a new development, one of the things that we're always looking at is a lead certification. We have done a BREAM certification for our in-use buildings. And so that's been really helpful in terms of getting third-party validation and even suggestions around things that we can continue to retrofit and to make our buildings more efficient. 
as we look toward the future, though, we're really aiming for a portfolio-wide goal of this carbon neutrality by 2030. And what that will take is some properties will be better positioned to have a higher level of, for instance, you know, clean or renewable energy. Some properties will have a different procurement profile and some properties will be able to even, you know, net meter or wheel energy. So it becomes less about the individual site and more about what the portfolio is doing across the nation. So, you know, I think the, the 2030 framework is something that we see a lot of people doing. And I mean, general corporate America, uh, roughly similar. It's one of those goals that's, you can state it at the high level, but devil's definitely in the details um, as you dive down. But I mean, does it, from where we are today, um, you know, not even a decade out, do you feel like you have a glide path to hit that? Like, is it, do you, do you kind of know what you're going to need to do to march towards that? Or are there, can you see sort of unknowns ahead? Well, certainly when our team came to us and, and said, uh, hey, Olivia, I think it'd be great if we were carbon neutral by 2030. Uh, you know, I didn't even have to take off my shoes to count to figure out uh, that's only nine years away. How do you <laughs> feel about this, you guys? Um, you know, it, it's a pretty scary goal when you start to think about it in you know, the huge sort of aggregate, um, you know, concept. So what we did was sit down and have exactly, as you say, a glide path to carbon neutrality. Our sustainability and energy management teams, um, in conjunction with our operational teams, spent a lot of time thinking about how we can achieve this. They spent a lot of time with our development teams thinking about as we're retrofitting properties or as we're even building new buildings, how do we design for carbon neutrality as opposed to designing a building and then having us come back and try to claw a bunch of operational efficiencies out of this. So as we look at this 2030 goal, we have five pillars around which we are organizing ourselves um, about you know, energy efficiency, investment, renewable procurement, reducing embodied carbon in our development projects, and then um, finally that last piece of uh, you know recs and carbon offsets. Got it. So one of the things I want to do is I've you know gone through your sustainability report or your last one, and there's some pretty interesting numbers that I'd just love to get sort of some some color on. Um, they were interesting, sort of in terms of. I mean, we touched on it earlier, but how long you've been working on this. So the first thing was that you have, and I think this number is right. And if it's not, I guess you can correct me, but you have 13 on-site solar installations right now out of 40 some properties. Is that, is that about right? Have I got some exciting news for you, Tyson? Our new corporate responsibility report, previously called our sustainability report, is being issued in the next 10 days. So you'll have another 174 pages that you can read at your leisure. <laughs> and what you will see in that is um, we have 16 solar projects, which are about 13.4 megawatts. Um, and in 2020, that on-site solar generation accounts for about 11% of our scope one and two emissions. Got it. And so, I mean, that feels, I don't know what a good retail benchmark is, but that feels like you're probably pretty high relative to your peers, no? 
we feel good about it. Um, there are certainly our peers, um, some of our peers that are doing really great work. Um, you know, Bioradamco Westfield is uh, also doing great work in this field. We're both EPA Green Power Partnership top 30 for on-site generation members. Um, you know, there are others not directly in our space. Kimco's doing some great work in this. So certainly as a real estate industry, um, although we continue to lead the retail real estate sector, I think as a real estate industry, we are starting to really mobilize around this idea of deep decarbonization. Yeah, got it. Another interesting thing I pulled out of your now your now outdated report is you've actually got fuel <laughs> cells uh, deployed in the field. So um, just what's sort of maybe the headline on that? What, what kind of fuel cells are they? What do they, what do they run on? They're solid oxide fuel cells. Um, and so the off um, gas is a small amount of water and um, a little bit of CO2. Uh, they, we have had fuel cells um, since about 2014. So we were a pretty early adopter of this technology. Our first one was a 750 kilowatt installation at Danbury Fair Mall in Danbury, Connecticut. And that one proved so reliable with almost no downtime that we transitioned from our initial installation, which was sort of third-party utility structured a lot like a power purchase agreement. Um, so our next five projects we installed with ownership so that we could get the full operational value from the systems. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is our fuel cells widely deployed in your business or are you is matrix somewhat um, an outlier in your deployment? We, I, I prefer to think of us less as an outlier and more in a as, good way, in a great way. Yes. <laughs> so, someone on the bleeding edge yes. of technology, but yes, certainly um, we are. I think um, a rarity in the real estate industry. We have been very fortunate to have the space for fuel cells that are sized appropriately for our properties. Um, we produce three hundred, uh, sorry, thirty-five million kilowatt hours of. Um, clean energy annually from them. So we've been pretty pleased with what they have been doing. And um, we're pleased with our partnership with uh, Bloom. And I would say the thing that might prevent us from doing more is uh, twofold. One is space. Um, you know, we, we've sort of looked at all of our properties and squeezed as much as we could into our properties, being mindful of our you know, parking ratios and other things, you know, what our footprint is, other things that we need, but also, you know, having some government incentives has always been really helpful for us in our hard energy asset projects. It's really important to align our programs with government programs so we can capitalize on those. And so that we really have this perfect sort of triumvirate of, government, landlord, and retailer alignment. Do you uh, do you install them opposite um, the solar at all? Like, is there an interaction between where you have fuel cells and solar, like sort of shaping supply side a little bit? Yes. Not in all cases, but in some cases where um, we do have a, a solar installation, we have done that. Uh, Danbury is actually a great example. Um, it's, it's a place we keep coming back to. We've done a solar installation. We've done a fuel cell installation. We've gone back and done a second solar installation. Um, and, uh, you know, more than 50% of Danbury's energy is actually um, from those solar and fuel cell assets. So another interesting stat is that you have something like 230 or 250 um, EV charging stations and like 30 different properties, which 
feels like a huge, um, huge footprint. Maybe, maybe you've got updated numbers by now on these. We do. We have over 320 installations, and it's something that we continue to look at, particularly as states like California began to mandate the sale of electric vehicles and the business model for charging stations begins to change. Um, you know, we have really relied upon third party providers thus far to operate these stations for us. But as we look at wider adoption of electric vehicles, as we look at what the states are doing what our properties are beginning to look like and what our consumers are demanding. It's something that we're looking at in terms of research ownership. Yeah. So that that's interesting, right? Because you have, um, uh, you know, several hundred call it, you know, in a way vending machines um, you've got, you're generating your own power. You've got your fuel cells, you've got your, you've got your solar. So in a way you could look at it, right? There's a, there's a, there's a power, the utility company hidden inside of a, a retail REIT. Um, it's almost like a, you could look at it as a separate business if you, if you really leaned into it. Well, I would say that we're going to look at it as a separate business, but certainly not act as a utility company because then you get all sorts of state regulations that are really complicated and, and bureaucratic, but certainly it is a line of business that, um, we're actively looking at and thinking about not only what do our consumers demand today, what works for us today, but how can we set up this charging station business so that it works for us in five or 10 years from now. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. And it's also something that we're seeing um, on the investment side, right? That if, if asset owner operators like you now all of a sudden have all these power assets to, to manage and manage this business line, there's lots of interesting sort of call it connective technology opportunities in there emerging from, from software that helps you manage it all just to down sort of the little bits of of, uh, uh, of hardware and power electronics to kind of manage the whole thing. So it's definitely an interesting field we're really interested in at Fifth Wall um, because we think it's, you know, retail is a good example, but we're seeing the similar phenomena in office and even logistics and warehouse that lots of vehicles are coming that need to be charged, power is being produced on site. And so there's just feels like a, a really interesting business opportunity in the middle of that. Yeah, and I think that, you know, certainly as we look at the different models, you know, free charging, pay to charge, the different types of hardware that may or may not be required to your point, the software, you know, finding the key to unlock all of those things in a single environment is going to be really key and helpful. So I'm glad to hear that you guys are looking at that because we'd certainly be an interested party. Yeah, no, I think there's going to be lots of opportunity and growth. Um, but something something you mentioned um, about solar a little while ago was that you have, I can't remember, it was a high percentage of your scope one and scope two covered by solar. Is that right? It's about 11%. It's about 11%. So it's, yeah, it's relatively high, yes. And so one of the things that I find interesting in talking to different folks in your seat across different asset classes is just how the definition of scope one, scope two, or scope three, or even the challenges between sort of the, the three different layers kind of changes, and maybe it's not obvious um, at first. So I don't know, let's talk through what, what scope one, two, and three means uh, as, a, as a retail operator and kind of how you think about that and maybe where some of your challenges are in it. So scope one is our common area. It's our parking lot lights. It's everything that the landlord controls. Scope two, we have much less of unless we are actively involved in a development project. That's, um, you know, your supply chain type of emissions. Scope three are our retailers. 
And that's the area that, quite frankly, we are now turning our attention to because we will not be successful in achieving carbon neutrality unless we can successfully partner with our retailers and find a way to ensure that whatever projects we put in place on this path to carbon neutrality benefit us, but also benefit our retailers and are aligned with what our retailers' goals are. So, yeah, so that's interesting. So, I mean, if you just, you know, looking at a, looking at a floor plan um, uh, of a retail development, it's, it's all tenants, right? So just by sort of seems to reason that scope three is going to be just the major burden um, involved. And it's not your decision in a lot of ways, or at least it's not completely your decision. So that's an interesting problem set. Yes, particularly when, you know, you pick any given retail property, you have, you know, call it 100 retailers, you have different retailers at retail property number two, and your store manager is rightfully focused on her individual same store metrics. And we have some retailers that are looking across their portfolio, but of course, much to our chagrin, um, they, they have other properties outside of the Maserich portfolio, and so other landlords with which they're dealing. So, you know, just as we have multiple stakeholders at every single property, our retailers have multiple stakeholders in the form of different landlords. And so, getting everyone aligned and you know marching in the same direction and at the same pace is proving to be a real challenge, particularly as we go through a period of a retail inflection point, if you will, as you know, retailers are really thinking about the way they deliver services to their customers. We're thinking about the way we deliver services, not only to our ultimate customer, but also our customers, the retailers. And so in this inflection point, how we align with those retailers and what we can achieve in terms of partnership is becoming really critical because if we don't achieve that, I will not be able to um, you know, come back in 10 years and say that we have achieved carbon neutrality in 2030. I'm wondering, have you seen, um, call it just a, a qualitative shift in um, sort of the, the, the stance of, of, your, um, of your tenants on this? So by comparison, for example, some of our office partners um, who I've spoken to about this, they've told me that you know, sort of 18 months ago, but really within the 12, last 12, even six months, um, there's just been an almost complete sea change on the side of their tenants in terms of their tenants have taken roughly 20, 30 aligned um, pledges. And so there's just the, the, the at least in spirit, the alignment is there. Um, I just What does it feel like that landscape looks like with um, with retailers? So I think that what you've said is absolutely correct. There is a qualitative change in what we're seeing from our retailers. Um, I'm looking forward to the next step, which is the quantitative change when we really get down to brass tacks. And we've had a number of retailers that have been very interested not only in our sustainability energy management programs, but also in our social programs. And many people are beginning to see these two disciplines as inextricably linked as we educate ourselves more about how climate change or energy efficiency is, you know, disproportionately affects some communities more than others. And our partners are beginning to think really deeply about this. And we're 
helping them understand what our program is, helping them understand what our goals are, and looking at individual jurisdictions and trying to find ways that we can partner together to retrofit existing retail operations when building new developments or building new stores. We're very focused on you know, green build-out language. Where, where is your supply chain coming from? What kind of materials are you using? How can we maybe suggest alternatives that might make your store more sustainable, more energy efficient, so that you know this is a, a ten-year convert every ten-year conversation, as opposed to um, you know us nagging annually about changing your light bulbs to LEDs or, or using low-flow <laughs> toilets. Yeah, yeah, no. So that's. That's interesting, that nagging. And, and what, one of the things we're seeing at Fifth Wall is, and you kind of mentioned it there, the idea of tenant alignment, but tenant engagement and tenant alignment are really interesting technology um, opportunities. Um, and I mean, you even mentioned one there um, around even things like water use, right? Um, what are some of the opportunities to to sort of leverage uh, everything, everything that we're seeing in our ecosystem? So, you know, small, cheap light sensors, submetering, you know, software dashboards, those sort of things. Um, uh, and we're seeing it in other asset classes, but I'm actually excited and out there looking hard right now for interesting companies that are bringing some of those things. Because I think what I'm hearing from you is just one of the challenges you have is just it's an alignment problem with tenants, right? How do you, how do you A, convince them that these are goals worth wanting, but then once maybe there's alignment around that, it's even just execution. So how do you, how do you share information? How do you share the ability to make decisions around um um, you know, both the hardware installed uh, in facilities, but also just uh, use and power sourcing and all those types of problems. That's exactly right. I mean, even at the you know sort of most basic level, if you find the greatest low flow toilet in the world, we now need to go out and convince a hundred retailers. Not only should they put a low flow toilet in, they should put this one in, and they should pay for it and do it now because eventually it will bear fruit. So it's a hundred different conversations just at one property. Yeah. No. And then if you think about it, right, those retailers, they then have their own constituents, right? From employees to customers and corporate headquarters and everything like that. So it's actually a, it's a pretty interesting challenge to kind of get everybody rowing in the same direction. So, you know, one of the things I like to do on these podcasts, and we've talked about one of them right now, but you know, we we like investing in startups that solve problems for partners like you. Um, so I don't know if you could riff on some some problems or opportunities that you see startups or solutions or tech that you wish you had access to or you wish you knew of. Um, if only you could find them. Um, anything come to mind? So one thing we've just talked about, just general, you know, things to help with tenant alignment and engagement and that sort of thing. Um, any other buckets or specific problems come to mind? I would love to get the microsite dilemma wired, um, you know, to get all of our hard energy assets talking to each other and talking to our retailers, light bulbs, you know, energy consumption assets, et cetera, um, so that we could look at a very complete whole property picture. I think that would go a long way into helping us understand how we can fine tune our energy assets, but also helping our retailers understand like, hey, you know, when you leave the lights on all night, 
this is what it, you know, if you aggregate those costs over a year, this is, this is what it costs. Um, and this is the energy that it consumes. Um, you know, low barrier to entry, sort of low cost widgets that we can put on retailers, lights and toilets and POS systems and HVAC units to help them understand the energy consumption on a per site basis would be wonderful. If I could, you know, if I could pick them all and have all of those widgets deployed across all of the retailer and the Maceridge assets. So I could say in one page, here is the energy profile of X mall. I would be in seventh heaven. Yeah. That sounds like a really interesting opportunity actually for any, <laughs> any entrepreneurs listening to this, uh, <laughs> listening to this because that, um, yeah, we see we see some of the we see all those pieces used elsewhere, but I don't think I've ever seen anybody tie it together in a way exactly like you're you're talking about. Um, any any other sort of buckets like that come to mind? You know, I think from a a larger overall perspective, um, if we could help public entities understand the role that we play in helping our larger grid or our larger water reservoir resources, um, that would be really helpful as well. So although it's not, um, you know, probably tech startup, um, you know, having a software solution whereby we look at an entire jurisdictional profile and Mm -hmm. help our public partners understand the part that we play, I think would be really compelling for our public partners. Um, You know, one of the things that we did in, Brooklyn was for decades. Uh, Kings Plaza Mall has was on an island in terms of energy. We had our own power plant. We made our own energy. Um, we were happy as well. And we, in the last three years, developed a partnership with Con Ed to connect to the grid. So the exact opposite of what everyone's talking about. Everyone else wants to decouple themselves from the grid. We wanted to connect ourselves to the grid so that we could deliver power on demand back to Con Ed during terrible summer brownouts. Um, You probably recall about three years ago, um, Brooklyn had some really serious um, energy outages that affected hospitals, that affected um, nursing homes. And since that time, we've been able to connect to the grid deliver power back to Con Ed when they needed it most to avoid those brownouts and blackouts. And we can certainly be a partner like this in other jurisdictions. We just need to figure out a way to get sort of our public partners to align with us in this way. Obviously, you know, all of our attention has been elsewhere focused over the past year to 18 months, but I'm hopeful that as we start to see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of, um, at least in the U.S., vaccine take-up, that our consumer shopping uh, is returning to normal and our attention can sort of return to the next normal and talk about these things with our, with our partners. So I think that is a really good note to wrap up on as we're going into spring here. I think everyone's looking forward to getting back to normal, and I suppose, I suppose, I suppose, retail is probably right in the middle of that. I mean, are you starting to see um, foot traffic 
coming back in a strong way? Are you, are, is the numbers like, are you, are you seeing numbers reflect what I think we all feel is happening? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, when we're looking at, for instance, our April numbers, we're seeing traffic, um, well over 80% of normal in Arizona, which we you know, sort of use as a proxy for the rest of the portfolio. Traffic is almost equal to 2019 numbers, and many of our retailers are seeing sales growth in ex- over 2019. Wow, that's so great. In excess of 20. Yeah, so we're really pleased about that. We do think that, um, as I said, Arizona as a proxy for the rest of the portfolio bodes really well for a productive spring and summer season for us. And, you know, quite frankly, we, our mission is to build vibrant spaces where people can gather in person to shop, to dine, to, you know, go to the movies, to entertain themselves. And if we can do that on a very gentle carbon footprint, I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, no, look, I love that. And one of my, one of your properties, Santa Monica Place is actually one of my favorite sort of places to go. And one of the, historically has been anyways. And as I'm thinking about getting out these next few weekends, finally, um, taking a visit to the promenade in Santa Monica Place is high on the list. So um, really looking forward to that. But anyways, Olivia, thank you so much for, um, for taking the time and for joining us and for, uh, of course, being a good partner to Fifth Wall and all that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, it's a great conversation. I appreciate it. It's been my absolute pleasure, Tyson. And um, if there's anybody that you know has any questions about our program or getting started or looking at the next portion of our life cycle, um, please don't hesitate to pass along the contact information. I'm happy to answer. For sure. We will do that. Thanks, Olivia. Thanks, Tyson. Thanks for listening to Fifth Wall's Tactical Tool Belt Podcast. For more on Fifth Wall and our efforts in climate tech, visit our website at fifthwall.com.